scripture reading this morning is Daniel 9, 20 through 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's word. So this is one of those places where uh, I wish I had about two hours And so what I'm going to do is take those two hours on Wednesday, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of unpacking this passage. I am going to take the view of a biblical essentialist. That's the view that I've been taking as we've been working through the book of Daniel. In other words, I believe what the Word says. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is unpack exactly what the Word says. And I think once you understand it, it's going to become very clear. So what's your unfinished project? I have some projects that were just dreams or are just dreams. Others are things I've started but haven't been finished yet. What's yours? Do you wonder if you're going to be able to complete it? (laughs) All of us in this room are unfinished projects. Listen to Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're not finished yet. We're half-baked. But there is coming a day when Jesus Christ returns, and then you will see each of us as we were meant to be. There is absolutely no doubt that God is going to finish what he has started with us. Well, this morning, 
we are going to catch a glimpse of an extreme makeover project. You've watched some of those house shows where they take this absolute wreck and turn it into something beautiful. This is the ultimate makeover project. And we're going to learn how God actually plans to take it from where it is to perfect. The breadth and scale of what he's done and will yet do is amazing. But it's also encouraging. God can take the worst fixer-upper on the block and he can turn it into something truly magnificent. And an angel named Gabriel is going to tell us all about what God's planning to do. Now, first, I need to give you some background. Some of this is just kind of rehearsing what we said three weeks ago, but some of it's just giving you some additional insight. Sometime after 597 B.C., a letter that was written by Jeremiah was delivered to the exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem. Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. That would happen in about 15 years. And he sent uh, Elasa and Gemara, two of his servants, and he said, take this to the exiles and read it to them. And here's an excerpt. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That included Daniel. So here's a letter from hometown, Jerusalem, sent 600 miles to the east to Babylon. What did it say? Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders, etc. And it goes on to say, uh, thus says the Lord in verse 10. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So Daniel started praying. <laughs> he realized the clock is ticking and we're getting near the end point. And so we read in Daniel 9.2, we looked at this a few weeks ago, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, which is referring to the first ruler of Cyrus, he says, I observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. In other words, he looked at this letter in Jeremiah for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And Daniel knows that 70-year period, we're about done. And so as we observed three weeks ago, Daniel started praying, and he's provided his prayer journal for us. We read it, which provided the insight into his prayer life, and we acknowledged four things. Daniel used prayer to connect Scripture to his circumstances. He made that connection. He acknowledged how sin looks in God's eyes. He looked at what their history was through God's eyes. He grounded his request on grace. He said, do this for us, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because you're good. And he prayed from a passion for God to be well thought of. But his prayer concerns something bigger than just get us back to the land. Here's an excerpt from that prayer from three weeks ago. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, get this, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. There's, we've provoked you. 
Take us to a place where we are no longer a provocation. Your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have now become a reproach to all those around. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh, my God, do not delay because the city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel was prompted to pray because he saw what Jeremiah had said about 70 years but he's praying for something that is much more profound clearly Daniel is praying for something that is greater than just a return to Jerusalem something else is on his heart this week Rochelle and I went to go see a movie we haven't been in a movie theater for years because of all the COVID craziness but we wanted to see this one the Jesus Revolution. How many, how many of you have seen it, by the way? Uh, was it worth seeing? Amen. <laughs> we loved it because Rochelle and I were in, the, in L.A. in the 70s. We were not necessarily Jesus freaks. We weren't hippies in a bus. But I was going to Bible college at the time, and we loved seeing what God was doing. And it was so amazing. Uh, I remember a concert where a Love Song was in the Long Beach Arena. So here's... I don't know how many, 10 or 20,000 people. And when it comes time for people to come to Jesus, here come hundreds, maybe thousands, coming to Jesus. Hippies, unwashed, whatever, but they're coming to Jesus. And there was this profound movement of God, and we were just going, this is amazing, I long for this. That's what Daniel's asking for. A heart revolution that's what he's pleading for God to do. Which, by the way, the passage that prompted his prayer from Jeremiah says something of the same thing. Listen to this. This is in this same letter to the exiles. He says, here's what God's saying. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Daniel's prayer was prompted by the prospect of returning from Babylon but Jeremiah's words that informed him say there is so much more that is needed. A solution to three problems. Hope, history, heart. There's, we need a, a future. We've got a heart problem. We need to deal with our history and be forgiven. And that is what God says through Jeremiah that he intends to accomplish. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He says, then you'll call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. He says, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Israel's heart problem was the root cause of the exile. It was the root cause of the Babylonian dispersion, uh, as well as the Assyrian exile. 
It still defined Israel when Jesus came. Listen to this. This is Mark 7, 6. Now, Isaiah made a statement about Israel. This is 100 plus years before Babylon. And Jesus quotes this and says, this is true today. Listen. And he said to them, rightly, this is Jesus talking to Israel. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Gabriel is going to explain. His explanation tells us what happens when some exiles return to Jerusalem, but that's not the whole story. Something far better than mere relocation is coming, and Gabriel's going to tell us God is going to finish something that permanently solves Israel's core problem. Okay, you ready? Now let's jump in. So while I was speaking, this is Daniel talking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Daniel was praying. He'd been praying for three weeks. And his prayer was interrupted. You know, can you imagine having, you know, your prayer time? Excuse me. Can I, can I butt in a minute? Gabriel, who he, he hadn't seen for 10 plus years, as far as we know. This was an evening prayer. He was following the pattern of prayer that was defined by the temple. The temple has been destroyed. It's just rubble in Jerusalem. But he's facing Jerusalem, which that's the direction I'm facing right now. He was facing Jerusalem as he would pray. And his prayer pattern was defined by if the temple had been present. He's extremely weary. He's exhausted from praying. And Gabriel says... He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. When Daniel started praying, Gabriel received... Instruction. I don't know what kind of communication network heaven uses, but Gabriel received instruction. Maybe it was at the throne room. And he says, hey, you need to get to Daniel and you need to provide an answer, give him insight into how I am going to answer his prayer. But it took three weeks, apparently, for Gabriel to get there. I want to introduce two terms to you. We've talked about this with the Wednesday night group. They, they have become experts in being in Sakal, but I need to introduce you to a couple of Hebrew words because they show up in this statement. It says, and he gave me instruction. That's being. So he gave me being and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come to give forth to give you insight. That's Sakal. With understanding, bina, that's a cognitive being. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed, give being to the message, and gain understanding, being of the vision. <laughs> what is being and what is sakal? 
Bean is a word that refers to being able to distinguish between A and B, to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. And it's also the ability to make connections, to be able to say, this connects to this, which is what Gabriel is going to do. He's going to say, you've been praying for this, this connects to this. Sakal is about biblically informed convictions that translate into words and deeds. If you want to understand a good picture of that, just imagine the fiery furnace. That was Sakal in action. Biblically informed convictions by which they say, we're going to follow God. God first, God alone. Therefore, we're not going to worship your image. And they were fine with incurring the consequences, which in their case, they did. Just God saved them through the fire. So Gabriel is saying to Daniel, I am going to provide bean and sakal. I am going to show you ways in which your prayer connects to things that are going to happen. And I am going to give you sakal. I am going to give you biblical conviction about how God is going to finish what he has promised in the Old Testament. So here's the first part of his Bean and Sakal speech. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now in Jeremiah 29.10 where he said 70 years. The word years is used, but here Gabriel says 70 weeks. What are 70 weeks? Well, the term that's translated weeks, shabuim, is actually a word that means sevens, 70 sevens. Now, if you want to make it clear you're talking about weeks, you would say Shabuim uh, Yom or Shabuim Yamim, which is a way of saying sevens of days. For example, in Daniel 10, verses 2 and 3, Daniel actually does that. Uh, he actually says three sevens of Yamim, of days. So here's Daniel 10, 2 and 3. And in the New American Standard, they've translated that expression three entire weeks, but I'm going to translate it literally for you, okay? In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three sevens, Shaboim, of days. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until three sevens of days were completed. So when Gabriel says 77s have been decreed for your people, and he didn't say 77s yamim of days, he's probably not talking about 77s of days, but 77s of something else. What could that be? Good question. Hang on. Our decimal number system is very important uh, to... Uh, Western culture, you know, we use multiples of 10 for all manner of things. Zero hadn't been invented yet. Zero existed, the idea of a zero something, but they didn't use that in their number system back then. But in Israel, seven was a very critical number, key number. 
Creation happened in seven days. The calendar orbits around seven days. Every seventh year is a sabbatical. And in Leviticus 25.8, he says, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. So seven sevens, 49 leads to a 50th year that is a year of Jubilee. So all I'm telling you is that Seven shows up a lot in the life and structure of Israel. Daniel's prayer was based on 70 years. And by the way, it was 70 plus the word years from Jeremiah. And he's saying, I, I see in, the, in Jeremiah it says 70 years and we're done with Babylon, right? But what Gabriel's doing, and there's a fun irony here, is Daniel's saying... What, what's going to happen here? I mean, I see the prophecy, 70 years and we're done. And Gabriel says, the complete answer to your prayer will not be fully realized in 70 years, but in 70 sevens. I'm going to answer your prayer, but we're going to do it in 70 sevens. Now, in another verse, he gives us very clear information that helps us understand what those sevens are. And it's going to allow you to be great bean students. You're going to connect something to something, and then you're going to be able to say, ah, okay. Now, from the verse that we've just looked at so far, these sevens pertain to, quote, your people and your holy city. So these 70 sevens are relevant to Israel and relevant to Jerusalem. So what Gabriel is going to reveal pertains to Israel, to Jerusalem. And within the span of 70 sevens, God is going to accomplish six things for Israel. A lot of people overlook this, but this is critical to understanding this passage. So what are those six objectives? These are the things that God is going to accomplish in 70 sevens that answer to the core of Jeremiah's prophecy and Daniel's prayer. Here they are. To finish the transgression, that's one. To make an end of sin, that's two. To make atonement for iniquity, that's three. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's four. To seal up vision and prophecy, that's five. And to anoint the most holy place. So in 77s, God is going to do all six of these things. And by the 70th seven, they'll, we'll get a check in all six boxes. They'll all be finished. Now the first three deal with redemption, the latter three with restoration. So let's recall Daniel's prayer a minute and then I'm going to unpack those six phrases. Here's what Daniel was praying just a few verses before in verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Even if you simply took the people of Israel from, from Babylon and put them back in Jerusalem, there's a big problem. That problem is the same hearts that are not God's We'll go back to another location and we'll just repeat it again. The sin, 
the heart problem, if that is not fixed, then we're going to keep repeating the same pattern. And Daniel's acknowledging this in his prayer. We're sinners. We commit iniquity. iniquity. We act wickedly. We rebel. We turn aside from your commandments and ordinances. That's our core problem. And whether we live in Babylon or Jerusalem or anywhere on the globe, that's a problem. So Gabriel says, let me tell you what we're going to do. Here is what God is going to accomplish in 77s. To finish the transgression means to bring sin of one against another to an end. Transgression is sin of one against another. And he's saying, I am going to provide a remedy for this problem of one person sinning against another. To make an end of sin means to neutralize and remedy our inbuilt bent to disobey God. He's going to address that. He's basically going to fix this thing inside of me that wants to do what dishonors God. To make atonement for iniquity means to forgive sin from the past and provide a clean slate. Everything you've done in history, it's going to be taken care of. Now, you kind of know where this is going, right? But he's saying, in 77s, I am going to deal with sin. I'm going to deal with your heart. I'm going to deal with your history. To bring in everlasting righteousness means I'm going to impart to your people the enduring capacity for righteousness that reflects my heart. There's you are going to, from, from the accomplishment that we'll achieve in the 77s, you are going to be a people who want to do what pleases God, and that's what animates you. To seal up vision and prophecy, the word seal up actually has the idea of realize its end or its goal. So to seal up vision and prophecy means to bring your promises to your people. Everything the prophets have said, to bring it to its consummate conclusion. In other words, to fulfill everything promised by the prophets. And then to anoint the most holy place. And it's, most translations say the, although the one that Carolyn read had a in there, which is good, because it doesn't say to anoint the most holy place. It says to anoint a place, which is basically a way of saying, bless us with your presence. Taken together, Gabriel is describing the full realization of God's good purpose for his people. Redemption, restoration, fellowship with God. And all of that is going to be accomplished in the span of 77s. Well, how long is that, Jim? Glad you asked. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, this decree, it says there's a decree. And it's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you come to the Wednesday night group, I'll help you understand other decrees and how they relate to this. But this is a decree in which a king or someone is going to say, Rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Take care of the walls. Take care of the plazas. 
the word moat there, it's a tough word because it's only used in this place, but outside the Bible, we've got some clues that suggest it means conduits, perhaps avenues. So rebuild a city in which there are avenues and plazas. There is only one decree that we're aware of that concerns the rebuilding of the city, and that is the, what's called the Decree of Artaxerxes in 445 BC. It's actually the decree that's recorded in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Nehemiah received a very depressing report on the state of Jerusalem. Some, some people came back to the place where he was and said to him, the city is not good. It's basically living in rubble. And so Nehemiah, and he told us what date he did this, he started praying and fasting. It's interesting to me, uh, he tells us the date when he got the report. And what I'm about to read to you didn't happen until four months later because he gave us a date. So here's a man who's pleading with God and praying and fasting. And in Nehemiah 2.5, it says, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. A little later, and I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So Gabriel says, 77s, God is going to accomplish all six of these things and start the clock when a decree is issued to rebuild the city, and that is the decree of Artaxerxes, which happened here in 445 B.C. It says there will be 69 sevens. He, he describes there's seven, which on Wednesday night I'll tell you what that's about, and then there's a period of 62 weeks, for a total of 69 weeks. So there's 69 weeks from 445 to Messiah. The word is Mashiach. So start your clock, 445 BC. Walk forward 69 sevens, and you will arrive at Mashiach. And I'm using the Hebrew word because I'm going to quote you a Greek word in a minute. Who's that? John 4, 25 and 26, woman at the well. The woman said to him, I know that Messias is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will de declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am Mashiach. I am Messiah. I am Christos. So when Gabriel is saying, start your clock at 445, decree of Arxerxes, and walk forward 77s, you will arrive at the coming of Mashiach. 
Now, the decree of Artaxerxes is fairly well attested. It's Nisan 1 of 445 B.C., which would be uh, March 1. Now, the months shift because we're dealing with different, uh, the Julian calendar that we use and the calendar of Israel are a little different. The most viable date for the triumphal entry is Nisan 9 which, uh, of 33 A.D., which would be March 30. So after adjusting for the differences between a Jewish calendar, a Jewish calendar has 360-day years. A Julian calendar, we have 365-day years three times, and then we have a leap year of 366. And so I have to do some calculations to make sure we've got this right. But the bottom line is that if you will start the clock at the decree of Artaxerxes, the coming of Messiah actually pinpoints the last year of Jesus' public ministry culminating in the triumphal entry. Daniel 9.26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Once week 69 has concluded, so after the triumphal entry, two events are going to happen. First, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. Cut off is a word that is elsewhere associated with the cutting of an innocent for sacrifice at the temple or tabernacle. There is, this is saying after the coming of Mashiach, he will be sacrificed. And he will have nothing, which means you would expect him to come into his kingdom. Instead, he will be deserted by everyone. He will be denied. And nothing of what he should have received would be given him. Doesn't it take your breath away? Gabriel says... You can start the clock on this date and Mashiach is coming. And when he has come, he will be sacrificed for sin like the ultimate sacrifice at the temple. And he will not realize anything but desertion and denial. I kind of wonder if this is one of the passages that Jesus used on the Emmaus Road. Remember what was happening? So he has these disciples, and they're basically saying, we thought he was the Messiah. <laughs> and Jesus says, oh, foolish. Let me explain it to you. And then it says he went through the Old Testament and he identified all these passages that says nothing has happened except what God said needs to happen. And this is one of those passages. When we get to heaven, we can talk to the two disciples from the Emmaus Road and we can say, hey, tell me about the verses Jesus used. I won't be surprised if this is one because it is so clear from Artaxerxes' edict to the coming of Mashiach. And after those 69 weeks, he is cut off, and it was predicted.
It says the people of the prince to come will destroy Jerusalem and the temple in an overwhelming way. Now it doesn't say the prince to come. It says the people of the prince to come. This is apparently people who are the kind of ancestors of a prince sometime later. But it says they will destroy Jerusalem and the temple in an overwhelming way. And this is a reference to what happened in 70 AD when the Romans flattened Jerusalem. And then it says a season of conflict and hardship stretching to the end will follow. This is a season in which we now live. And he will make, this is the prince to come, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. By the way, I, I didn't make the point, but I probably ought to. So what's the most obvious conclusion about the sevens? They're years. Because from the edict to the arrival of Messiah is 69 sevens of years according to a Jewish calendar. And it says, and he, this prince to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is discreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This one week is the final seven. Hasn't happened yet. There's an interval between the 69th and the 70th seven. But then this final seven, seven-year period, a treaty will be established. But at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the treaty will be broken. Worship of God will be halted and replaced by something abominable. Unprecedented desolation will follow. That's coming. It hasn't happened yet. It is fixed and certain. Bank on this. The prince to come's plans will fail even as he, the destroyer, is destroyed. And by the end of 77s, all six of these things will have happened. He will have finished transgression, made an end of sin, and made atonement for iniquity. All of that happens on the cross. He will bring in everlasting righteousness when we get our resurrection bodies. He will seal up vision and prophecy. He will accomplish everything that the prophecy the books of prophecy have said, and he will anoint the most holy place by coming and living and dwelling among us. God is going to finish what he started. His promises will be fulfilled. If God can successfully complete a project of such scale despite daunting opposition and obstacles, then he is more than capable of completing the project that is called you for I am confident of this very thing Paul is confident are you confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus the work that he's even now doing in you will be completed when we see him once again beloved now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is 
You may have all kinds of self-doubts and excuses, <laughs> but God, through Jesus, is perfectly capable of making you into a masterpiece worthy of his name. If he can do that with Israel, a people who were hard-hearted and bring them to a place where sin has been dealt with, hearts have been repaired, and they have a history and future in his presence, then how much more can he do that with us? God is not finished with you. He's using everything you're dealing with now. Some of you are dealing with a lot. <laughs> but he is using everything you are dealing with now as a part of his process of turning you into the person who will someday stand in his presence, look in his eye, and you will look like him. It's possible there are some in this room who would say, well, there's no way. You don't understand what a mess my life is. And my answer is, no, no. You don't understand who my God is. Our God is capable, more than capable, of taking the biggest mess you can find and turning you into someone who looks like Jesus if you will give him permission. He's not going to do it against your will. But if you will say, Jesus, take me, make me, be my savior, be the one who changes my heart and make me the person that you want me to be who looks like your son. He will take you at your word and he will do it. You know, I find it hard to cooperate with God's improvement plan. You know, there are times when he introduces something and I'm going, ah! <laughs> I experienced that on the drive here and back all the time on Walnut Grove. <laughs> Everything. You know, the lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord controls even the little things because he wants me to become more like his son and I must not, I dare not resent it, but instead thank him for it because God knows what he's doing and he is capable of making me into someone who looks like his son and he used everything I'm dealing with to help me get there. Let's pray. If you have never given Jesus permission to change you, you can do that right now by praying something like this. Lord Jesus, you came... You were cut. You were the sacrifice. So that I might have my sins forgiven and live for all eternity in your presence, a changed man, a changed woman. I want that. And I'm giving you permission. For those who know Jesus as your Savior, you can pray a prayer like this. Just pray along with me. God, I am giving you permission, not that you need it, but I'm giving you permission to do whatever is necessary to make me into the person who is going to someday stand in your presence and look like your son. 
Whatever you got to do, do it. This week, there's stuff coming. You know what's coming. We don't. But there's stuff coming that you are going to use. Help us to respond in a way that reflects faith and trust in you and an earnestness to become more the person you want. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.